Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, critical thinker, coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. Welcome to my show. Uh, This week, we are going to discuss how do you go about criminally prosecuting or civilly prosecuting even, but how do you go about prosecuting destructive cults? Uh, large groups, groups that are not, you know, we often think in terms of prosecution, we watch Law and Order or CSI or any number of crime shows all the way back to Perry Mason. And you watch an individual commit criminal acts, uh, evidence is found for those acts by the police or authorities or somebody, that evidence is presented, the person is arrested, they they, they go to trial, the evidence is presented of the crimes he's committed, and the person is found guilty and goes off to jail. And that's the usual sort of cycle of things that we look at as to how people end up in jail. But there's a whole nother thing that goes on in the in criminal prosecution that we're going to talk about because um, sometimes it's not so simple or easy to take a person or a group of people out uh, because it's hard to find simple evidence of, simp- of, of exact crimes that are being committed. And so, um, so a lot of work over a lot of decades has been put in by law enforcement officials to try to figure out how do you take down a mafia dawn or a, 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 you know, a criminal syndicate. And of course, this applies to things like the Church of Scientology or similar groups what we call destructive cults who engage in behavior that is illegal, and yet it seems very, very hard to be able to just simply go out and prosecute such groups. So in 1970, we have this thing called the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. And so this week, I have brought on my good friend, uh, Jeff Wassel, who has all kinds of information about this kind of thing, uh, to um, to treat us to some education about how all of this actually works. Um, Dr. Wassel, you have actually done work like this, yes? Some extent, mostly in the UK, but around similar statutes. Uh, you know, any, any large, uh, any country, First Nation or First World country that has, that's a member of, say, the Financial Action Task Force or something like that, will have organized crime statutes or statutes to look at. Uh, you know, prosecuting patterns of behavior. Uh, in Britain, it's a serious crimes office, or I, they change it, you know, all the time. But um, it's because of the transnational nature of criminality now, it's really important to look at behavior rather than borders and things like that, you, because it transcends, uh, certainly in cyberspace as an instance, you know, uh, prosecuting uh, computer crime or child pornography or any of that nasty stuff on the dark web, you can't look at the typical restrictions of jurisdiction that you used to have in the old days. Right. So, so what we're going to be talking about a lot is how um, there there's a lot more elasticity now in statutes and the way that criminal organizations and crimes and criminals themselves are perceived. Uh, you know, they're, they're systemic relationships rather than standalone behavior or you know, standalone phenomena like a guy goes and robs a bank or something like that. 
Right, exactly. Now, I should, I, I just kind of jumped right into the middle of this. First off, welcome to my show. <laughs> Thank mm. you for doing this. Always. always <laughs> yeah. um, and just so everybody who isn't familiar with our earlier episodes, because we've done a few of them analyzing various things about Scientology and groups in general. Um, where, where, what's your general background with this? How are you, how, how is it? Well, I, my background is in financial crime and any money laundering. I mean, this is right up my alley. And so in looking at, you know, Rico is just another tool to counter that kind of stuff. Um, and in looking at the evolution of uh, anti-money laundering and, and financial crime, uh, it has its nexus in the behavior of organized crime, because you need to figure out a way to get rid of your illegally, you know, illicitly gained proceeds as it were. So, uh, you know, RICO is uh, one of a couple different tools that came about as a result of the mob's influence in America in the late 19 or early 1970s. So if we, uh, if you look at the context of why RICO came about, um, it was a result of, you know, J. Edgar Hoover finally dying, the FBI realizing that, yeah, there is organized crime. We need to do something about it. Because there was kind of an almost a hands-off approach uh, or, you know, single uh, prosecution mindset about fighting the mob. And it was, you know, really ineffective because it usually was going after the street-level soldiers, the guys that were actually doing the capering and not the people that were controlling, you know, the large organizations. And, you know, you got to remember the mob is, you know, is, is, is Meyer Lansky at one point said, you know, we're bigger than GM. And he was probably right. That's, we're talking 1955. So, you know, a wow. lot of money, a lot of, I mean, the, the mob, it, and if you look at how pernicious it was, certainly uh, as a result of um, post-war expansion in, you know, the United States, just as part of the boom, uh, you know, there was just more call for construction and all the other good things that the mob has its fingers in. So you have the Kefauver Commission uh, back in 1951 finally says, yes, we're, you know, we recognize it. And of course they have this dog and pony show, all these, you know, classic (laughs) goombas, as they say, you know, come before, take the fifth. But I mean, it really opened the American public's eyes to the fact that, wow, here's something that, you know, we kind of joke about, but actually goes on. And more importantly, legitimately, there was a legitimate concern that it's touching everybody in America because it's so embedded in the economy. Certainly in the Northeast and, and the Rust Belt, you know, where you have heavy labor uh, influence and, and traditional uh, blue collar activity that is open to mob and racketeering influence. So things only get worse when the mob decides to sell drugs. And this is a very, this, this caused a lot of grief in the mafia itself because uh, you know, there was a traditional uh, antipathy to, to, to moving powder, as they used to call it. And in fact, it caused, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, mob wars and, and change of commands, if you will, in the, the major families like the Gambinos and the Chezis and, and uh, all these other people. And so once it was established that, OK, we're going to sell drugs, all bets were off because then the profits exponentially increased. So now, you know, more people are dying from both heroin use and also, you know, the mob, you know, wars to try and control drug trafficking, narcotics trafficking. And you've got, you know, the beginning of the 60s, more people are using drugs. So, and there's a general, you know, current in the country of, of upheaval, you know, the Vietnam War is on the hand. So there's a lot of things going on in the country that are really concerning the institutions and, 
you know, the powers of be as it were. So in 1970, Nixon um, is president and is, you know, very, you know, starts this whole war on drugs kick and says, we're going to do something about this. And, you know, you got to remember too, at the time, wars on things that war on poverty, war on drugs and all this, you know, we're coming out of the great society. So it was like the next step to try and figure out a way to deal with a very pernicious problem. Um, interestingly enough, there's, there's a lot of stuff that happens in 1970. You've got the Bank Secrecy Act is passed, uh, which basically formalizes the requirements of banks to deal with money laundering. Because up until that time, money laundering hadn't really been an institutional phenomenon. It was, you know, yeah, these guys are, are moving money. But we kind of know about it. But now you, Mr. Banker, have got a set of instructions. And now by statute, you have to follow. Uh, so it's interesting because then, you know, literally nine days later, RICO comes into play, is signed by Nixon. This all happens in October of 1970. So you kind of have, you know, you can say the BSA begat RICO. And in a way, you needed a way to understand the way money was moving. So then that way you could use it, that understanding of money as a prosecutorial tool to go after organized crime. So it's, it, there's kind of a, a, a logic here. It's, it's so, interesting to me that it took them so long to figure all of this out. I was under the impression that, well, hey, I watched The Untouchables. I mean, I, I you know, that like, you, that, how did they take out Capone? Well, they went and they got him through tax law. But that but was see, back tax in the, was, you know, tax in, law, tax law was, you know, there weren't really money laundering statutes. You know, money laundering was perceived as, as an outcome of dodging your taxes because you're trying to hide dirty money. In fact, the term money laundering didn't really come into play until the 70s as a result of the mob having a huge investment in coin-washed laundromats. And they needed to move, they would use laundromats as a way to move uh, illegally gained money and you know, literally laundering it. That's, you know, that's kind of the, uh, the, act, the anecdotal uh, beginnings of the term money laundering. And you look at like the pizza connection and some of these other huge mafia heroin operations, they needed, they used very simple ways to move money. Because the, the thing you always got to remember about organized crime, it's heavily, it's a cash centric business. You're moving tons of cash all the time and you need to do something with that cash that can be, you need to legitimize it. That's what right. money laundering is all about, really. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. I was just commenting that it surprised me that it took them so many decades to get around to figuring out how to how to do this after the whole Capone thing. I, I, I think they figured, you know, they, they, they did well enough with, you know, tax law and things like that. And I mean, you could, you could, they be, it was mostly, you know, I think the way that statutes evolve over time and also the way that I think part of the problem too is that they were dealing with crime, organized crime, almost in an isolated fashion. You know, the FBI went after it. And then you'd also have, you know, say the you know, big cities like New York or Detroit or whatever had, you know, localized law enforcement area. But the age of the task force, you know, where you had all these prosecutorial tools and a mindset behind it to make it work really hadn't evolved yet. Right. So I think that's kind of what we're talking about here when you say you're and and you know, I've studied this stuff a lot and it, it's, it's, it also plays to the fact that there was kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge approach to the mob. You know, if you look at the way the fifties and the early sixties, it was just, you know, you paid, you knew you were paying a little bit more because that's just the way it was. You know, that was a street tax. 
And so much of the mob was pervasive in, you know, bookmaking. People love to gamble. People like to buy dope. People like to drink. You know, when you look at the, 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 the social costs versus the practical realities of uh, the way the mob works, it's a no-brainer why it allowed its, you know, why it was kind of just basically tolerated. Uh, but then, you know, when you start, and it also, I think, has, a, until the drug thing came into play, the mob was very insular. You know, it, it was, you know, very much set in old Sicilian rules about you couldn't shoot civilians and, you know, you didn't go, you know, doing all this stuff that would bring attention to yourself. But as the money got more, uh, the, the, the real reason for existing all bets were off as far as the way the mob behaved. And so it became more overt. And I think that was part of it too, is that overt nature really forced the hand of the authorities to do something. I mean, for crying out loud, the Gambinos used to give, uh, you know, uh, J. Edgar Hoover racetrack tips. Okay. So, I mean, you know, I mean, there's just, there's always been a, you know, a quid pro quo at certain levels between law enforcement and the mob about, uh, you know, the way that each behaves and, and kind of what the boundaries are, what was acceptable and what would, you know, kind of uh, reach the norm as it were. Got and it. it is what it is. Right. All right. Well, we come here to 1970 when this, these laws get passed and okay, fine. So there's uh, Nixon's war on drugs. And I have a few things to say about that in terms of pot, by the way, because I don't think that was particularly motivated out of, uh, you know, purity and sweetness and light. I think there was a racial element there, but that's, you know, that's a very niche thing. And we won't get into that right now. Um, I want to talk about Rico and I want to talk about, you know, how does one, how does a Rico case work? Like from a prosecutorial point of view or a law enforcement point of view, how do you even begin Something so like that. The, the, the problem in prosecuting the mob was always getting to the top. Right. You know, you could, you know, arrest street soldiers till the cows came home and Omerta, the code of silence and just the way that you know, these guys, it was all kept in the family, literally and figuratively. And so you really couldn't bring down an organization until you could, you could prosecute it in toto. Right. Yet, interestingly enough, the way Rico works, it, it, specifically says that the enterprise is is not a a, a prosecute uh, uh, an entity that can be prosecuted it's individuals that comprise the enterprise it's the behavior within the enterprise that rico specifies or looks for illegality and this is where the you know the 35 different crimes you mentioned come into play uh, primarily it was it's it's looking it, it's very simple and it says you know racketeering is you know obtaining funds under duress uh, you know, debt, you know, un, uh, illegal means of debt collection. I mean, all the stuff that the mob does. But Congress didn't write RICO just to go after the mob. They were looking at, you know, bigger, I think also at that time, you're, you're starting to see more white collar crime come out. And it's important to note there are, you know, RICO is not just about white or, you know, crime. It's, it also has a, a significant white or uh, a civil crime component to it that's very important. In fact, is probably used more than actually going after criminal organizations. Interestingly enough, and the, and about the same time too, you had the the kingpin statute that came out that was very specific about how you went after drug trafficking organizations. So there's silos here now that the feds are getting smart about how they're going to use resources. So what RICO says is that you have to you know you have to look at what an enterprise is 
versus how an individual relates to that enterprise and then what that enterprise is doing over time. So patterns of criminality, all right? So you have to have these, these four things that are components of, of a RICO prosecution, which is you know, the individual, the enterprise, the act, and the duration and the pattern. You know, so what is, you know, what constitutes the nexus of the crime? And so the neat thing about RICO is that you couldn't, for now the mob bosses couldn't be sheltered in this very Byzantian layer or opaque layer of organizational and, and financial protection, right? So, and, and why not? Like, how does this, how does this work that you get, that you can get to the top? How because you, you, can, you can structure an organization that, it, you know, that gives you, for lack of a better term, plausible deniability from the, what's going on in the day-to-day affairs of your organization. So, you know, Carlo Gambino can sit up here and say, well, I don't know what these, these guys aren't moving dope. I didn't know anything about it. Well, no, what we've now found is you've got individuals that are demonstrating a pattern of moving dope in your organization that also includes the creation of legitimate entities that are being used to move illegal, you know, illegal profits or, you know, money laundering. So there's a pattern of criminality that you are now responsible for as being at the top of that organization or a member of that organization, not so much the organization, but as a component of that organization. Okay. So clearly then you're talking about putting a case together of duration because yes, it takes a lot of investigation to see recurring patterns of operation, not just single instances of whatever, you know, and the offenses that we're talking about here, uh, when it says 35 crimes of racketeering, um, you know, this thing becomes uh, law in, in 1970. And so we're talking about, it lists out a number of offenses uh, that constitute racketeering, including gambling, murder, kidnapping, arson, drug dealing, bribery, mail and wire fraud are on the list. So, so to that, interesting enough, usually the, the, the initial, pre- there's this idea of what's called a predicate crime, which is, you know, the initial, the most heinous or whatever crime that they're going to indict against. And then they start stacking the other stuff like tax evasion or money lending or whatever. So usually extortion or bribery or something like that is going to be the predicate crime. Now, interestingly enough, usually murder isn't prosecuted at the federal level, but you'll see that it's included in indictments because it is part of a pattern of behavior or murder is used as a threat as part of an extortion ring. So Initially, they can always start with wire fraud, money laundering. And the thing that's really, in a way, insidious if you're a criminal about RICO is that if a, if a prosecutor has a good case, they can go and request that your assets be frozen prior to the indictment, which basically leaves you with no money to get a proper counsel. So it's going to incent you to probably cop a deal or role and, you know, work with the prosecutor. So, I mean, there's, it's, it's created in a way to just bam, come right in there and say, we're not messing around. This is what you're looking at. So let's start dealing because it's because of these layers, you need a way to work your way up the layer. You need a way to turn people that into informants again, because to penetrate a layer like the mob, there's so many different permutations of the way they behave and they're so insular that you have to figure out a way to infiltrate them. So be by hook or by crook, 
uh, there's a lot of incentive built into RICO to cooperate. Uh, and also because the damages, you can get trouble the damages in RICO uh, if it's a civil case, but also even for restitution cases on criminal. So there's a financial uh, incentive within RICO to cooperate with the government. Okay. Um, because wanna, this is, I want to understand something better, and that is the difference between criminal and civil prosecution using this. Um, what What is that difference? So a civil prosecution would be, you know, Trump University was sued under RICO uh, in a civil case back in, I want to say, 2013, because they said that there was no Trump, no university, uh, you know, and that you could make all this money getting a degree out of there. So it was, there was, it was a pattern of behavior that did not constitute criminal. Uh, there were, they, they chose to prosecute it under uh, the civil statute probably because the, uh, the, the level of evidence needed tends to be less in civil cases for something. Uh, and also the statute of limitations there is a, a four to uh, four year statute of limitations for civil crimes in RICO. There isn't for uh, uh, criminal prosecutions. So it's usually the, the crime component of RICO is usually specifically targeted at organized criminal behavior versus what we would call white collar crime or civil crime. Um, oh, it's a fine line. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's why I'm kind of wondering about that line because you want to see groups get prosecuted who are doing bad things. Um, what would be the outcome of a civil prosecution though? Like would that, would they result in fines or? Yeah, fines, asset forfeiture, all that stuff. It's in, you know, consent decrees. Like for instance, uh, the Los Angeles Police Department because of the Rampart scandal was prosecuted uh, under a RICO complaint. And ended up with, you know, uh, a, a, a consent degree about the way that they behaved and had to reorganize their, the Rampart Division, institute, you know, racial sensitivity training, all this stuff. So the, the thing that, about RICO is that, you know, government is not immune from it. And there's no distinction about the legality or the illegality about the enterprise because it's specific to the individual, you know, the pattern of the behavior of the individuals. But if you look at like a police department or an organized crime uh, entity, the behavior is what is being targeted of that organization through prosecuting the individuals. That makes sense. Okay. All right. So, so again, the thing to keep in mind there is patterns of conduct. Patterns of conduct. Repeating patterns of conduct. And in this day and age now, we've moved into repeating patterns of conduct even across borders. You mentioned jurisdiction earlier. This is another very important aspect of this because we now have multinational corporations or groups, uh, again, coming back to um, Scientology, it's, a, it's an international organization, certainly has a repeating pattern of conduct all around the world. It does the exact same thing over and over again to people and gets away with it. Um, so, that, so those are the things that, those are the building blocks of a RICO case then. Yeah, but it would still be, it's a, RICO only covers crime in the United States. It is not, I mean, if, so if a, if a corporation is misbehaving abroad, it would be prosecuted for that behavior in the United States. Yeah. It's not like, you, okay, yeah, just want to yeah. make sure. Oh, no, for in. sure. I, but, but you could look at behavior that's going oh, absolutely. outside the absolutely. United States in putting yeah. such a case together. 
This is where we get that, that we read. And that's also why they came up with the Kingpin statuette to delineate between the multinational behavior of drug traffickers versus say criminal enterprises or corporations that are, you know, misbehaving because they're just, they're different tools or different types of behavior. And there's a criminal nexus within drug trafficking that is completely different from kind of the, the mixed bag you, you may get in a RICO prosecution. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's kind of the way it's, a, it's a legal way of picking your battles to probably bring the most effective statute and resources to whatever you're trying to go after really. Okay. So it sounds like from what you just said, cause I've never heard of the Kingpin statute before until you bringing it up here in the mm-hmm. podcast. What is that? What is what? What are we talking? So about? in 1970, um, right around the same time, they came out with a. Uh, it's it's it was a component to the Narcotics and Controlled Substances Act in 1970 that basically codified uh, drug distribution networks of being more than five people would be subject to very severe penalties based on the intent and conspiracy component to distribute drugs. And so, you know, a kingpin being the head of that organization became the target for very specific activity, primarily by the DEA and uh, local jurisdictions. It's just another hammer, but very specifically targeted towards organized drug trafficking. Oh, got it. Okay. Um, so that, that's very specific to the drug trafficking. Absolutely. You thing. wouldn't go after a drug trafficking network with RICO. Now, that's not to say that, you know, if there's a mob that's stealing dope, yeah, but that would be, you know, drug trafficking would be a predicate offense within that RICO prosecution. Okay. But understand, a mob has its fingers in a lot of different pies. And, you know, the thing about, too, when you look at uh, prosecuting a, a drug ring rather than just your typical organized crime uh, or, or network or what have you, is that it's a very high risk in a different way, in the sense that you've got buys, you've got to set up, it takes a long time to get the trust of these individuals. Sometimes they're even more impenetrable than the mob. So there's, you know, certain things that come to the point about evidence gathering that are very unique to to prosecuting large scale drug trafficking. Okay. And certainly, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the transnational nature of it. Uh, And then there's treaty components. Like if you're, for instance, wanting to extradite somebody that come into play, it's just a whole. It's just a whole different game, really. Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and um, and get to something very specific then, and let's like try to bring some of this. Like, okay, there's this. There's these laws, and there's these ways you go about doing this. To something specific that I think a lot of people are very interested in, in, in terms of my listeners, which is uh, something like Scientology. Um, very large multinational organization billions of dollars in reserves and, and, and money, and certainly a recurring pattern of behavior in terms of stalking, harassment, you know, of, of its critics. Um, you know, we know they use the legal system and in, in, in legal chicanery in, in various unsavory ways to, to shut people up or try to uh, harass them into silence. Um, what do you see with your background in criminal prosecution and RICO and these kind of things, what do you see when you look at the model of Scientology or similar organizations? So I've written extensively on kind of what I believe is the organized crime model in Scientology is, you know, you have David Miscavige as a Tutti de Capitutti 
who basically by fiat runs an organization that is based on fraud. The problem with prosecuting that is very much like it was with the mob in that it's shrouded in omerta, but more importantly, has now shielded itself through 503 exemptions and also the religious exemption of the First Amendment. Vis-a-vis Nexium, which is getting hammered because they've always set themselves up as a for-profit organization, as a business, which leaves them a lot more exposed in Scientology. Now, where Scientology ex- is exposed, in my estimate, is the abuse of R1, R2 visas, because that, to me, demonstrates an ongoing pattern of fraud and criminality in the way that they exploit uh, religious workers in this country. Um, unfortunately, the conduct that we all know that they behave in as far as abuse and things like that tend to be only prosecuted at the local level where they occur. Um, slapping somebody repeatedly is not a RICO offense. Assault right. is not a RICO offense, unfortunately. Right. Well, where where it would come to play in my mind is where they're exposed on fraudulent fundraising, like in say the Garcia case, where they're creating a, what is in effect a Ponzi scheme to fund an org or a building or something like that. The problem is, is that as we saw in the case with the Garcias, that they chose individual litigation versus it being sponsored at the federal level through an indictment. And the only way that would happen is if somebody were to roll within Scientology or wear a wire or there was some kind of evidence gathering. Because this is the biggest thing that you need is to establish, you know, it's one thing for us to see what we perceive as behavior that's criminal on the outside. It's another to understand the workings of why it's criminal so that, you know, a prosecutor can then build an indictment, go before a grand jury and say, I've got a RICO prosecution here, uh, most likely in this case, a civil prosecution, because it would involve fraud, tax fraud, things like that, you know, things around donations and fundraising. Um, but it's, that has always been the difficulty with any closed organization that hides behind its 503C and its First Amendment protection. Hey, everybody. So this is my little sponsor spot for BetterHelp.com. And this is an online counseling service. It is not a crisis line or a suicide prevention line. There are other services for that. But I wanted to endorse BetterHelp.com because it is a service I believe in and it is something that I think a lot of the viewers of my channel could actually benefit from. It is cheap, it's affordable, um, it is licensed therapists. It is not just, you know, life coaches or something. It's actual trained professionals who can um, be contacted through uh, the link below, right, I'm displaying it on the screen right now. It's betterhelp.com slash cshelton, and the link is in the description section below down uh, on YouTube here. And that is a service that you can get text help, voice, chat, or video. You don't have to necessarily be looking or talking to the person who's helping you, because sometimes that's a button for people. Uh, also, if you get, you know, within 24 hours, you'll get hooked up with a counselor. If that person's not doing it for you, you can get somebody else. If you can't, you know, the, the fees are like 35 to 65 a month or a week for the service. Pretty cheap, pretty good, affordable service. I really don't know how they do it, actually. Um, I'm, I'm amazed by it, but it's, uh, but it's something that does actually help people. My wife, Melissa, has actually used the service and gotten a lot from it. Uh, and there is financial aid for people who uh, can't, you know, maybe make even those payments. So give it a shot. Check out the link. Fill out the survey. You know, give it a go. See if it helps. I think that, um, that getting that kind of help is something 
all of us need sometimes. I've spent, uh, you know, I've really leaned on my friends and family over the years, but sometimes friends and family aren't really the right person to talk to, and, uh, and using a service like this might be exactly what you need. So, again, check out the link below and uh, betterhelp.com. Yeah, the legal, the, the religious component really does give them a, a, a really nice suit of armor. It's horrible. You know, it's I, absolutely horrible. Because it's also worked very effectively in protecting Scientology from prosecution for human rights violations or for, uh, you know, starving its Sea Org members or overworking them for, you know, days or weeks at a time because, hey, that's religious commitment, man. That's what they signed up for. We're we're monks. We lead a monastic existence. So, well, yeah, you know. and you know, getting somebody in finance to to cop to you know, if there's withholding violations at the federal level on FICA, you know, where where it would be a federal thing versus a state thing. This is the other thing too about the jurisdiction of of when you get into employment law and a lot of the things that the Sea Org is violating in many cases. The other thing. If I look in retrospect, probably the, the where the government would have had a good shot to go after Scientology would have been around the Lisa McPherson debacle. Yes. I think that would have been a classic uh, opening for a RICO prosecution, just because we know, just from you know people like Marty Rathbun and other folks that were involved in it, that they engaged in ongoing endemic fraud, uh, and in some cases, uh, you know, negligent. I mean, it resulted in negligent homicide for crying out loud. So, you know, there was all kinds of, you know, her civil rights were violated, which would have been a classic federal entree in there. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 the floor, you know, the way that Scientology safe pointed that by using extortion and, and means of uh, intimidation of the, uh, of the, the corner, those are all markers of, uh, or, you know, predicate crimes under RICO. Mm, so, uh, you know, it was just, uh, who knows why that didn't happen, but, it's just some of the feds, the feds didn't get involved or weren't interested or uh, it was, just, you know, Scientology kept it so much in the family to the extent that, and I think also, I think the Florida authorities were just so embarrassed by the way they handled it, that they didn't want to take it any further. I think there was, you know, I think there's an element of uh, CYA there. Oh, for at. sure. I, I believe that that is very true. I think that um, I just got finished reading um, Jesse Prince's book um, right. called Expert Witness. Um, and, uh, by the time this posts, I think I'll have posted my review of that book also. And, um, he talked about how, when they set up the Lisa McPherson trust in Clearwater, right there in Scientology's face after she had died and in, in order to try to, um, you know, get people out of Scientology and, and be a, you know, sort of bastion of truth in the middle of Clearwater, um, that the, the he mentions in the book that. Uh, local police from Tampa and Clearwater were like, hey, man, anything you need, you know, we're here for you. We we want to help you. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Um, you know, I don't know that the, that I, I, it's, it's a, I think, I think the situation between Scientology and the authorities in Clearwater is complicated. I think it's compromised, quite frankly. Well, but I that's, think that's part of it, but I don't think that they're all compromised was the point. No, but when I say compromise, I mean, it, you know, they're all on the take more so that it's very much like the same relationship in Los Angeles. There's, there's an organized, there's an organizational uh, hesitancy that is, I think it's been institutionalized almost because yes. of the relationship with Scientology. Yeah, exactly. So, and and it, that's what RICO is designed to bust though. You know, if you start looking at, the, the components of safe pointing and all this other rubbish that Hubbard talks about, 
those are all predicate criminal events within a RICO prosecution. But it's the time involved and, and looking at intent, jurisdiction, and again, getting people who's going to testify to that effect. This is a thing. You you still need, right. you you still need people you need that people are who have done the deeds to absolutely testify. Because again, you it. need to have individuals. RICO is about individuals engaging in a criminal enterprise. It's not going after Scientology. It's going after the people in flag or the people that are propagating it. In this case, Miscavige and his underlings that are you know responsible and have knowledge of the way they're moving money, uh, you know, on this, on the, this free wins or whatever, you know, all the different little capers that they got, you know, they got going on just because so, of the nature of the business. So could such a prosecution start with former members who have knowledge of activities testifying or bringing evidence or bringing whatever they have to the authorities and saying, okay, well, this is what we were doing. We did this and this and this and this, and then them, moving into evidence gathering on existing members doing those things? Is that how that? Absolutely. Works? But it would have to be within, you know, the four year criminal or I'm sorry, civil st- It depends on how the feds want to prosecute it, you know, but I think they would most likely go after, you know, as a civil RICO rather than a criminal RICO. So it would have to be in a window that is acceptable, uh, you know, within statute or the statute of limitations. And then it's the, the other thing too, about RICO is the cost benefit analysis that they're going to do to see what they're going to get out of it. You know, it's one thing if they're going to go, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, it's not like the the federal government's broke when they want to go do a RICO prosecution, but there is a risk calculus involved as far as, uh, you know, getting the understanding how they're going to, it's, for example, what happened with uh, the human rights investigation that the FBI did some time ago. You know, uh, but they, why that didn't go any further, I think, was because there was hesitancy at the federal level in Los Angeles uh, because they didn't really understand how they were going to go after the church. Okay, so we've got this body of evidence. We have established patterns of abuse at Mace Kingsley or in the Sea Org and all this. But one, we need people that are going to testify to this, number one. Number two is, again, are we in the statute of limitations? And three, how do we establish the pattern of behavior over time if we don't have those witnesses, right? So, and, you know, it's like what happened with the Headleys. They filed under the wrong statute. They probably had a pretty good case. So it's very, you have to sit there and look and make sure that you're going after the uh, an organization, or actually the individuals in the organization for the right charge and the right crime. And again, you have to go after individuals. It can't, you know, the Headleys are going after Scientology as an entity. Rico says you have to go after individuals that are engaging in a pattern of criminality over time. Okay. So, you know, again, it's, it's very much, a, it's, it's a, it's a completely different thing. So we would need the sorts of things that would be necessary in order to do something like this would be former members who with knowledge, who were, who got out less than four years ago, pretty much <laughs> to even start. And then, rolling up the line, you would want to probably have a situation where you were either wiretapping or sending somebody in who could record or retrieve information and bring it out in such a way that it could be brought to investigators to show very specific things. So, you know, it's it's one thing to have like a, a Mike Render that knows where all the skeletons are, right? But, you know, 
he's been out for what, eight years? Right. You know, so that gives you context, prosecutorial context, that somebody could say, well, you know, we know this stuff goes, hell, all they got to do is read a book, read Jesse's book. But it's more important to understand the ebb and flow of what's going on. And I think, you know, it, it would have to be probably as much from the IRS and ICE as it would be just at the DOJ level, because again, you know, the R1, R2 things, I think is where they're really exposed, uh, the religious visa thing. Mm. Uh, but, you know, and then there's the behavior of the IAS and the way that money moves. And, and uh, so, but again, to get an understanding of how that money moves and the, the way it's structured, they would have to get a wire on somebody that's, a, you know, a flag banking officer or wherever that knows how those accounts are, because, I'm sure that they are not, and this is a thesis I've had for quite some time, uh, they are not adhering as religiously as they should to the post-patriot money laundering requirement act and, and the rules that are in place now. Just Scientology just doesn't work that way. They have an absolute disdain for the log world, as we know. Right. And, you know, people don't understand in 2001, when Patriot came in, all bets were off as to the way that you used to look at how you handled money laundering requirements, currency transaction reporting, and all this stuff. So when I hear anecdotal information that Sea Org members are still bringing cash off the free wins under the $10,000 limit specified by the BSA, that's structuring. So somebody needs to cop to that or get an understanding of how that's being organized. More importantly, who's authorizing it who's responsible for it, et cetera, et cetera. And that falls in, you know, in the term of the board's lap, but yet there has to be some type of insider information or evidence, evidentiary gathering that provides that pattern of conduct needed to bring a RICO, a RICO prosecution in place. I mean, right. just look at, you know, the, the, the FBI recorded something like, you know, 14 miles of tape to get John Gotti in wiretaps, right? And that wasn't really, a that was an individual. They didn't go after him as a RICO prosecution. They just went after him for, you know, being dirty. But there were RICO components to the case. Now, if you look at a classic mob RICO prosecution, like what happened in uh, 1950, I'm sorry, uh, 1986 with the uh, Mafia Commission trial, which effectively decapitated the five families or the that owned New York at the time, they that's a classic RICO case where yeah. we've established means, motive, and opportunity of each individual under racketeering, labor fraud, uh, extortion, and murder for hire. You know, all the classic stuff. Right. And that um, would, so we're talking about a multi organization, because you mentioned multi jurisdictional, multi jurisdictional, multi agency, maybe yeah. a better way to put it. Uh, investigation, you're talking about infiltration of the church would be necessary in order to get this information because the church is certainly not transparent and is not going to no. provide it. And no. you're talking about having to infiltrate at a very high level because you mentioned earlier, um, a few minutes ago, having to infiltrate at the level where you're going to get to see the various bank accounts and the very, you know, where the money is, how it's being moved around. Uh, in order to get that kind of information, you would have to be at the international reserves level, which means sure. international management, somebody at the gold base, they have to get to that place, which means they have to join the Sea Org, they have to get up the line. It takes minimum 
a year and a half, two years to get to that level if you can stay focused. And believe me, keeping track and being in charge of your career trajectory in the Sea Org is a very difficult thing. If you were if you were to implant somebody into the organization who, let's say, was a CPA or something, then they might be motivated to put the person into the finance area. And then they theoretically could be, you know, if they were really gung-ho and really go get them, then maybe they could be moved up the organizing board of Scientology, the hierarchical structure, and eventually make it to gold. But it would take somebody who really knew what they were doing for an extended period of time to go live that life to get to that position where they would have access to that kind of information. It is a small group of people who have that level of access. The other thing is, I think, is political will. There's a lack of political will about Scientology. Well, that's kind of where all this is going, yeah. Yeah, because if you look at, uh, the easiest way would be an administrative revocation of the 1993 consent agreement, right? That banks their exemption. And then all bets are off at that point because we know they're dirty. So I think, and this, you know, and Jeff Augustine has written extensively on this, you know, the, the problems with getting a commissioner and all this, but and right. there's a whole other school of thought. This as well, it would take this huge investigative uh, activity and all this stuff. Well, not really. I mean, the commissioner can just write a letter and the exemption goes away. So then you start bringing DOJ in. So you've got two, you've got treasury versus DOJ. You've got two, significant large entities in the federal government that could come after Scientology. But uh, if I looked at, you know, rationally, the way to do it would be go through the IRS because just they're always skating on the edge as we know it. Right. So, uh, and and I think that would be a far more uh, efficient use of resources than a RICO prosecution, to be quite frank. Right. Well, that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you, because actually I wanted to really break this down because people ask all the time, like literally every week I've got comments on my channel. Why doesn't the FBI do something? Why doesn't the police do something? And in trying to answer that question, we come up with podcasts like this where we go, well, because it would take, you know, thousands of hours of work, millions of dollars in, you know, prosecution money, budgeting to put such a case together And, you know, is the Church of Scientology such a threat to the public in general and in large that that the government's going to feel motivated to do something like this? And the answer pretty much comes up, no, they're really not. Well, and and also, so if you look at, say, there's, what, $1.5 billion in reserves in the church, that's a drop in the bucket compared to other tax fraud that's going on in the country that the IRS could be focused on. Right. I mean, we well, then we, yeah. Then we then we go to the IRS angle, and you know, and yeah, this comes up. So, but the other thing is that the more things like the Masterson case and uh, expose the kind of the pernicious relationship that Scientology has created with the authorities in places like Florida and LA, I think that is starting to get a little bit more momentum about questioning the legitimacy of the church and why it is hiding behind First Amendment protections. Now, you know, we can war game this all day as critics, but I think until something breaks loose, uh, maybe even the, in the Hanan uh, Islam thing, you know, the Medi-Cal fraud, or what you're seeing with the Medina brothers, the fact that WISE is a business entity is another entree that I think may 
supplant the R1, R2 thing at some point because there's no religious protections around that. It's an out-and-out fraud. And they're showing, to me, there's something that's endemic, uh, I'm sorry, that's integral to the way that WISE is structured that engenders fraud. You know, let me let me me just stop you just for one second. For anybody who doesn't know what WISE is, the World Institute of Scientology Enterprises, it is a subsection of the Church of Scientology International. It is a secular use of L. Ron Hubbard's administrative procedures and techniques sold as business consultancy to chiropractors, dentists, doctors, preferably, but also veterinarians or any any company can adopt Hubbard's management procedures. And WISE is a licensing group. They get royalties for this. They advise and business consult Scientologists who own businesses. And they use this as a um, as a means of dissemination of Scientology by getting chiropractors and these various people on board with Hubbard's management stuff. And then they go, oh, you like that? Well, here's Scientology. And then they make them into Scientologists and proceed to rake millions of dollars from these business professionals who now become Scientologists. So that's, that's the wise racket, so to speak. So within that racket... To me, there seems like there's a, there's starting to emerge a repeating pattern of criminality around Medi-Cal and Medicare, I'm sorry, Medicaid fraud in these organizations. And so if you start looking under, the, and same with Narconon, there's fraud around all these Scientology organizations and the way that they're set up, the way they move their money. But certainly, you know, if you look at the way the Medinas have been operating and the way that uh, Hassan Anan and uh, the folks in L.A. were operating, that is not those aren't isolated incidences. There's something moving around within that wise ecosystem that, to me, is indicative of an intent to defraud or at least is systemic enough to warrant some kind of investigation. Because we're not I mean, we're talking what 80 million dollars in the Medina case. So, and, and the thing about it is that it appears to be, you can repeat it. A good fraud is repeatable. And just the only thing that difference is scale, right? Right. So, you know, what, here's a what template. What is this Medina case you refer to? I don't know that. Um, the, the Medina brothers were chiropractors back in New York that were just recently indicted for an $80 million Oh, uh, those two, problem. right. That's right. Yeah. On Tony's blog, he he right. broke that story. And, last you know, week. who's to say these prosperity seminars on the free wins, they're not just sitting down and figuring out ways, to, you know, create Medicare scams. Uh, you know, I mean, there is this kind of stuff is simple. It's templated, follow these instructions, and you're going to get rich until you're caught or, you know, you fly to the Bahamas. And it wouldn't surprise me if there's uh, some type of institutional component to that. That would be a classic entree for a RICO prosecution. Okay. Because if they could, so in other words, let me make sure I'm understanding this and, and, and communicating this to everybody. So the Medinas are, are a couple of chiropractors who are Scientologists and they're committing gross and glaring Medicaid fraud. They got busted. Um, you know, I'm sure the church has distanced itself from them already, just like it did with Reed Slatkin when he got busted for his Ponzi scheme back in the 90s. Uh, he ended up going to jail, declared suppressive person. He ripped off millions of dollars, even yes, Scientologists, Reed Slatkin yeah. did. So the Medinas are doing this, this, this Medicaid fraud. So the idea here is that maybe they're not the only ones who are doing it, and maybe they actually figured out how to do it 
through Scientology's business consulting. They're so networking, this. and it's you know anybody that follows Scientology's wise, any of these the the secular front groups will see that they're they have a history of ripping each other off. There's always get rich schemes around Scientologists. Yes, there are, and they and they always tend to you know there's no. <laughs> It's probably no coincidence that a lot of these guys are chiropractors, which, you know, depending, uh, you know, I don't know where people sit on the fence on that, but uh, just the way that the billing around that goes and the questionable efficacy of homeopathic healing and all the other stuff that goes with quote unquote wellness, it lends itself to quackery. So what better way to escalate a fraud? And then it's, it's self-referential because you're a Scientologist. So I'll go buy from Bob, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh, by the way, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I get 10 bucks back every time I send somebody over there. You know, before you know it, you've got this nice little network of of, uh, of criminality, really. Yeah, it is something that's noteworthy that it comes up over and over again in Scientology that its own membership are people who are willing to um, bend or break, you know, wog laws, as they call it. In other words, actual law. Um, because they're Scientologists and they know better and they're trying to save the world. So anything they do is justified under that, you know, umbrella. And well, the most uh, ethical people on the planet, Chris, come on. I mean, exactly. So, and, and you, you know, when you, when you disregard the law and say that you're above it, then you get to call yourself that because, Hey, you know, they don't apply, those laws don't apply to me. So of course I'm ethical, you know? Yes. I'm so ethical, I can recognize how unethical all these laws are, and I'm not going to follow them. <laughs> so, you know, how do you, how do we get the ball rolling on something like this? I would encourage anybody that's watching, you know, write your congressman and say there needs to be, you know, some type of revision of the First Amendment religious protections uh, for any, any church, really, uh, because there's, it, there's no test. You know, in Britain, at least they have it. I shouldn't say for religion, but for nonprofits, they have tests, public benefits tests. You know, in the yeah. United States, it's very nebulous. So we need to get a process that legitimizes the fact that, you know, the state is subsidizing religion through tax exemption. It actually goes, it's antithetical to the way the founders set stuff up when you look at it. You know, there should be a separation of church and state. But I think, you know, churches should be taxed just like anybody else. But that's not going to happen until there's a seed change in the way that, uh, you know, churches are perceived. And, and this goes to, you know, mainstream religions as well. But, you know, cults are going to hide behind it because by their very nature, they need to have elast you know, ethical elasticity, as it were, and how they, they run their affairs. And the, and the minute they can get out from the government scrutiny under, uh, you know, 503C or First Amendment protections, you know, all bets are off. And then we get Scientology, we get Nexium, we get Jonestown, we get all these things. The, That's know, right. Kind of the blowback, the unintended consequences of it. That, well, that's right. That's exactly right. And it's one of the reasons that that these groups and the people who start them are drawn to religious paradigms uh, to, to, to set their group up around. You know, Nexium was not. Nexium as it was a kind of a, a unique thing uh, or not unique, but it was uh, an exception in that it's very Scientology-like. But it presented itself as a business consulting thing. Right. So, so there was no First Amendment for it to hide behind. Hubbard started that way. I mean, he started with a little science he called Dianetics. Yeah. And it was only after that tank so hard twice that he went, oh, gee. Um, you know, but even back in the 1950s when things were a lot looser and goosier, he still saw, well, if I hide behind the First Amendment, though, if I make this a religious activity, 
oh my God, look at all these, look at all these benefits. And so yeah. that's what he proceeded. Failed franchise, you know, evolves into religion. I mean, it's not the yeah. first time. Exactly. And it was, and it was actually a genius move on his part because it afforded mm -hmm. him all kinds of protections. Um, so, you know, so it's, it's, so it makes, in other words, it makes sense that these groups would go for the, as Hubbard called it, the religious angle, you know, uh, but they can still be gone after. It's just a matter of, uh, uh, of the force of will, the political will the, and, the, and the money, the budget to do it. You know, and then having the right angle, that seems to be really important in all this because we've talked about three different, I think in the course of the show here, we've talked about three different ways that you could move in on Scientology, uh, all of varying degrees of complexity, but, right. um, but, but choosing the right one is key to the rest of the roadmap as to whether it's going to you know, get you where you want to go or not. I think the other thing is, um, you know, all politics is local as is, you know, law, really. And I think if people spot egregious conduct by Scientologists at the local level, you know, they need to make police reports. They need to, you know, call people out if they see uh, whatever, whatever behavior, you know, that, that, that is illegal, make a report because that will establish patterns and patterns interest police, you know, because it's, again, it's the conduct that it's a social conduct, but the, again, there's, that always that protection about, well, is that person really doing something illegal or is that part of their faith? So, you know, if you see if somebody's being abused or it looks like they've been starved for eight weeks and sitting out in front of flag, well, maybe you could probably, you know, write, uh, request a welfare check, but I've had first person experience with that, you know, doing um, exit counseling. And even that is loaded with uh, all kinds of assumptions and protections, usually biased against the person reporting. Law enforcement is very leery to get involved unless there's absolute documented behavior, uh, uh, you know, that is indicative of criminality or something that is something that they can take action against. Right. Yeah. It's right. Just, that, that's and that is the problem is, um, or one of the biggest problems and, and barriers in this is that, um, you know, we don't have enough law enforcement investigators and officials to do all the work we'd like to get done. Well, and, and it's not even a law enforcement. A lot of the stuff that Scientology does is should be investigated by social services. You know, it's it's the welfare and institutions component. Uh, and that's where a lot of this lacks, at least from mm -hmm. my experience. Because, you know, when you look at the events at Mace Kingsley and, and licensing and all these other things, these are all civil and government constructs. They aren't really, you know, part of law enforcement or the remit of law enforcement. Okay. Now, you know, if they're violating them egregiously, then law enforcement comes in. But, uh, you know, pulling permits because Scientology, you know, isn't has too many people in a birthing, that's a legitimate complaint, but that's something that needs to be prosecuted or investigated by, you know, a civil entity. And this is where Scientology is really good is that they hide behind these are they these laws are they safe pointed the licensing authorities or what have you? So there has to be some entity that is you know detached or has not been tainted that can go in there with an objective lens and say uh uh this is no good. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, exactly. And and now we're talking about uh, well, social services. I mean, you make a very good distinction there, but it's still the same problem. I was just same point I'm making is actually even more applicable there. Not enough social workers or social yep. service inspectors or welfare inspectors or child protective service people. And 
Uh, and, and, you know, they, they, these, are, these are people who, when you get down to the individual level, they're overloaded with cases. Their patience is at a premium <laughs> at best most of the days that they go to work because they're faced with, you know, an unbelievable amount of horror, horribleness. And, well, the thing that I, what I found yeah. was interesting, Chris, is um, I had some uh, experience with the Los Angeles Social Services and an intervention, I don't know, a couple months back. And the gal that we were dealing with didn't even know what Scientology was. So, you know, you've got to, there's, so there's a ramp time to get people up to speed on what this cult is yep. you know, and all the baggage about what they do. I mean, it's a, it's an education in itself. And that's just one asocial entity that they probably got to deal with in LA, let alone all the other whack jobs. Well, around. yeah. How many thousands of little <laughs> cults are there in LA? I'm telling Absolutely. you, there's a lot. There's a Absolutely. lot. You know, I mean, there's, you wouldn't believe the stuff people get up to. I mean, uh, fortune tellers, there's a, there was a fortune teller. I had a long talk with Rachel Bernstein one time about this fortune teller who had managed to build up a little cult around herself with her as the head and these people who were completely reliant upon her to tell them whether they were going to have good or bad days or whether things were going to go well for them or not. And they were paying out. She was, you know, she was all but extorting these people out of, you know, huge amounts of money uh, and controlling their lives all from fortune telling. Wow. I mean, so, so this manifests itself in so many different ways Trying to police all of these groups is just, you know, it's it's crazy. And yeah, you bring a very good point that it is a multi-agency thing because it also has it should involve social services and stuff too. I think the other thing that occurs to me as we're talking about this, and I was having a conversation with another colleague of mine, is that I think we need to ratchet up the whole the focus on human trafficking within Scientology. Uh, I think because that is one area that is, you know, the criminally culpable. It's certainly there is no black and white about the behavior. And when you look at, you know, like this whole flap about what happened in Colombia or what's going on in Mexico, I mean, there are ways that they are leveraging, I'm sure, their international presence to uh, engage in, in questionable behavior about how they're fulfilling their staff requirements in places like FLAG. I mean, there's just no way. And we know that people are coming from these, you know, Eastern European, uh, Eastern Europeans and Russians and all that. Uh, so that I'm sure there's thinking stuff going on there just because of the nature, the way they use, or they're very uh, loose about what guardians are and how the, because the ICE regulations are very specific about who is a guardian, what parental knowledge is done, you know, all that stuff. And I, I just, I'm sure that there is a window there that could be exploited by uh, ICE or somebody else if there's interested. But again, it's getting the will, it's getting the, the, um, the political will to do that or right. find enough examples of it. Um, because it's, it's one thing to come out and have the, you know, tell a story, oh, I was abused, this or that, or the other thing, but you know, where are the specifics? What are the next, you know, means, motive and opportunity. That's what you, you need to, to establish criminality. So until there's a concerted effort of people that are leaving the sea org or uh, have experience with this, that are willing to testify and not be harassed, this is the other thing, you know, the way that Scientology deals with people that leave, um, there has to be some kind of a, a will there to do this. Now, maybe the Aftermath Foundation can help there as far as stealing people for what they can expect. I don't know. Um, I think, though, that there, there's two components here. And I mean, it's hard enough to leave a cult 
and let alone get your head wrapped around having to relive the, the, the experiences of that in a way that's objective that can be in turn used as a, a, the means for criminal indictment. I mean, that takes a lot of uh, psychological and uh, mental will, <laughs> you know, yeah. given the control mechanisms that are in place. That, I mean, how long does it take to, you know, kind of deprogram yourself a little and have to deal with the authorities? So that's a whole nother layer of complication that these the authorities are facing in wanting to turn somebody or get a witness or find some bent or avenue back into the church. Uh, oh, God, I can only imagine the difficulty in turning an active Sea Org member. <laughs> during yeah. The course well, of the yeah, it's that do- yeah. Well, here's the thing. If you can turn them, I mean, the, 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 the mom mentality and the way that Sea Org members are in, indoctrinated, there's not a whole lot of difference. America is no different than the idea of, uh, you know, the, the greatest number of dynamics, the greatest number of goods. I mean, that, that doctrinaire idea that and the structural brainwashing that occurs, it, there's ways to get through. You know, people are motivated by love and money. Those are always the things that really break criminal rings. Uh, you know, and and money and love are always around betrayal or, or some sense of injustice or what have you. So it's leveraging that. But until somebody is willing to do that, or the feds make a concerted effort to start approaching. Uh, people that are active members of the Sea Org to create some type of sting or some type of uh, uh, covert operation to penetrate the church, that's not going to happen. Right. Well, I just wanted to go over this because I wanted to highlight the complexity and complications involved in doing this kind of prosecution. RICO and otherwise, we've managed to cover quite a lot of territory here with all of this. And I hope that this gets across to people. That it's complicated. It's not just a matter of police walking into a church Scientology and start breaking out the handcuffs and arresting people. It doesn't work that way. That's not how this goes. And so the point of us, so some people might have a reaction of, well, then what's the point at all? And, you know, they're just going to get away with everything. And it's just another corrupt thing. And it's just another example of, you know, a, a corrupt system and all this. And I go, no, guys, no, look, here's the deal. Yeah, we talk about, you know, legal or civil actions against Scientology. They, you know, I've said before, they practically own the courtrooms. I mean, they, they, they are able to hire such legal firepower because they have an unlimited amount of money to do that with, basically, and, and a will to do that. So that's not, I think, where we're basically going to win. We could, these, these things, everything we're talking about could happen. Hell, for all we know, maybe it is happening. But... We, but, but not knowing about that, not being sure about that. And we'll, we'll see what comes out in the wash. But in the meantime, I don't want anybody to feel discouraged because I want people to know that the, all of that's not necessarily what we need to be doing or can be doing in order to take Scientology out. <laughs> because what we're doing on the PR front here by exposing the lies and the viciousness and the stalking and the harassment and all that we get people the heads up that they need so that they just avoid the thing in the first place and they don't get involved. And we, we cut off their new membership line, so to speak. And then they're just struggling and losing people because they do lose people like a sieve. And we keep them doing that. And that is, that's a strategy that's actually working. That's, that's resulting in real life results of people leaving and not joining and not going in and not becoming part of this thing. So 
So that's something we can all participate in just by sharing, by linking other people to these stories, by making it, you know, by, by every time a new book comes out or a new, you know, or, or more information comes out, propagating that information using the tools of social media, which are built to share information as widely as, and as quickly as possible. That's what we all can do about this that, we, that is effective, is working, and, and will result in, in long-term, you know, downward spiraling for Scientology. So I just want to end on that note because I want people to know that it's not all hopeless. <laughs> it's just that this legal thing is a lot more complicated than I think a lot of people know. And I, and I talk about this often because I, I, I think people need to know this and I don't think they generally do. I don't know. That's, that's what I wanted to sort of. Well, I, and also to that, the feds aren't stupid. When they see the behavior like the Medinas or the Hassan Islams and, and these folks, they can put two and two together. So it's time. And uh, as much as we want these guys gone yesterday, I think we're at a tipping point where, uh, you know, we have the, what you to your point about exposure and, and social media and all these other things. Uh, there is, uh, I think, a greater awareness of Scientology's general culpability than there has been in the past. You know, it used to be oh, crazy space cult or what have you. Now people are understanding that these guys uh, are associated with organizations that are patently criminal or are engaged in behavior that is, you know, ripping off the taxpayer uh, that has nothing to do with belief. And right. this goes to, you know, something that I always try and, and reinforce when we have these podcasts is that the more that we own the narrative about Scientology's behavior, the more we'll be able to expose that behavior uh, to uh, hopefully an end state that it's somehow of interest to the appropriate authorities. And that narrative is, you know, it's not a church, it's a business. It's an organized criminal enterprise. Uh, you know, disconnection is nothing more than extortion. I mean, all these, these, it's just the whole narrative we own. We can own that as critics and as, as people in the, in the, in the commons, as it were, about how Scientology is perceived. And I think that's also being reflected in some way uh, how poorly perceived Scientology TV has been and some of these other mass media efforts. It's just they're a joke because everybody, people aren't gravitating to them because they already know that it's fraudulent, it's fraudulent or it's just going to be a bunch of hokum. So uh, to me, that's inspiring, you know, for those people that are worried about the legal thing. Uh, they're losing the war of hearts and minds, which, as we all know, can be far more catastrophic than losing the military battle. Exactly. So, exactly. You know, that's and another this, thing to think about. This, this actually makes me want to mention one other point here, because I've I've gone on record and, and video and, and even debating with Aaron Smith-Levin a little bit about um, the religiosity of Scientology. And I just want to make it clear that 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 when when people out there, especially former members, are talking about or defending the religiosity of Scientology, as far as I'm concerned, you're just forwarding Scientology's bullshit when you do that. Yeah. You know, you're not helping anybody at all by by pushing that that nonsense. Hubbard used as a as as a strategic move in his organization's founding and expansion. He used the the religion card. Yes. And, and he did that on purpose. It's a crafty move because it plays to the hearts and minds of people's beliefs and cherished 
heartfelt ideas about spirituality and afterlife and all of that. But it's when, when you're talking about something like Scientology or these other destructive cults that use this on purpose to gain advantage legally and apparently, you know, morally, you're just playing into their hands. And I really wish people would get that. You know, I haven't really. Yeah, it's really important to separate belief from behavior. And what we've been talking about today is all about behavior. That's what Rico is all about. That's yeah. what, you know, if you look at where we're going to nail these guys is in where they, and, and this is always the opening with Scientology is they're very hubris. Their arrogance allows openings periodically based on these assumptions that, oh, we're a religion. Well, no, you're not. But I'm not going to sit here and say, don't be a Scientologist. What I'm going to say is don't behave that way. Don't be culty, as it were. You know, right? That's right. So what we're we're talking about to the audience is looking at behavior. And this is where we're going to nail these guys or other cults. Uh, You take the belief away. There's threads that run through all these that are indicative of criminality. Exactly. And that's and that really. Yeah, that's that's the bottom line. That's the point there. So, okay, folks. Um, so we're going to wrap up, Jeff, thank you very much for, for being part of this and giving me all that information. I I think it's valuable. Always a pleasure. And I will say this too, I'm not a lawyer, but you know, the Supreme court has played around a lot with Rico because it was written in somewhat of a vague way. So part of the issue too, is looking at the applicability of the law. And this is always the catch all at the federal level. That's why a lot of times it's, it's better to start at the, the state level or the jurisdictional level. Like for instance, in New York, the uh, Southern district, uh, U.S. district attorney for Southern Manhattan has always done probably the, the yeoman work in mob prosecutions because they're good. They're there. They understand the law. And I think this is part of the issue here with prosecuting Scientology is there's not a will in the West Coast to do it because we've never really gone after them. Same in Florida. You get somebody in New York, they're going to go after them like they did after the Medinas. You know, there's 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 a certain mindset that you need also to see this stuff through. So, again, it goes back to this idea of, uh, you know, political and, and institutional will. Good so, point. Very good anyway. point. Okay. Great talking with you, Chris, as always. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, Folks, any questions, comments, feedback, good, bad, or sideways, leave it in the show notes uh, or description, uh, the comment section rather here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. And um, I have a special message for everybody at the end of this podcast. Please go ahead and listen to that after it is all over. Talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye. Hey everyone, so this is a quick short message about the state of affairs in Sheltonland, in in my world. Um, You can see I'm using a bit of a different impromptu background here at my desk because I we have construction going on at the apartments that I'm living in right now and uh, everything is just kind of a real mess around me. And that leads me to a there's a possibility, there's, a, there's a, an opportunity that I have right now to get a bigger apartment where I will actually have a room for a studio and not be in my living room. Now, this is kind of obviously important to me, maybe not so important to everybody out there, but then again, for maybe some of you long-term subscribers and people who would like to see an improvement and upgrade in my channel, maybe you could help me pull this off. What I want to do on Patreon is I would like to get up to $1,500 a month from where we're at now. We're pretty close, I think, right now to around $1,200 a month. So if I could bump it up to that, then I could actually have the income to be able to afford to be in that larger apartment 
that's open right now as a, as a, as a possibility and um, then have an actual studio, a dedicated space. And that will um, improve quite a few things actually about the quality of the work that I do here. So if you're at all interested in seeing this channel get upgraded in that direction, then please sign up on Patreon uh, and support my channel and my efforts here to bring you the best that I, work that I can do on a consistent basis uh, with the three videos a week that I post. Uh, I, of course, appreciate any and all support you guys throw my way, whether it's through a one-off through PayPal or through YouTube or through a uh, subscription through Patreon. Now, what I can offer you through Patreon in terms of incentive to do this is um, I, and when I first started Patreon, it was I was not doing special content. Uh, I was just saying, hey, look, if you want to back me up, that's the way to do it. But I have since started offering some things uh, to my Patreon supporters only, such as a monthly uh, dedicated Q&A or conversational video that just is between us. It's kind of similar to the live stream Q&As that I do, but it's only for my Patreons and it's only kept there on my Patreon channel for them. Um, I also have some ideas of some special humorous bonus content that I want to put together with uh, my wife, Melissa, that I think might um, appeal to some of you guys too. But there's, uh, there's some surprises there, so I'm just going to say right now that we've got some ideas that we thought might be kind of fun uh, that we could share with you guys. And I am always, always open to any other ideas people might have as to what might incentivize people to become part of my Patreon uh, support page. So. That is my message right now. I'll um, be tagging this onto my videos uh, for the next uh, couple months as I uh, have this possibility opening up here. See if we can pull this off. Again, the goal is $1,500 on Patreon, so anything you can do to contribute to that would be helpful, whether it's just a dollar a month or more. Some people do substantially more, and they, it is so appreciated. All right, guys, thanks for uh, listening to this message, and I will see you guys next time. Bye-bye.